Matthew chapter 7. Uh, read along with me, if you would, please. I'm reading from the ESV. Um, you can follow it on the monitors if you'd like. Beginning in verses 21 through 23, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Boy, just jumping right into it, huh? My goodness. This morning, we are continuing through the book of Matthew. For those of you who are visiting today, or perhaps you've um, not been with us for the last couple of months, we are working our way through the gospel of Matthew through a new creation lens. What I mean by new creation lens is the lens of which we now see life as those of us who are in Christ Jesus, as Paul tells the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And so we're endeavoring to understand what are the distinctives of the Christian life on this side of the cross. How do we look? How do we act? What are the things that we say? What do we value? What do we desire? All of those things are character traits of new creation life. And so we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're seeking the words of Jesus to reveal to us the distinctives of the Christian life. And we studied from the book of Colossians some time ago, but as Paul would say, he speaks of a transference in Colossians chapter 1. And he speaks of it not as hyperbole, but he speaks of this transference from darkness into the kingdom of light as a vibrant reality. As, as something that is experientially true of the Christian life. We have been transferred from darkness into light. And we've said this many, many, many times over the last six to eight months. But does it not seem like we need to remind ourselves of that on a daily basis? It's almost like in the morning we should wake up and say, I have been transferred from darkness into light. That's a great way to start our day. And so it is, we have to remind ourselves of that. Because of the liturgies of culture that would draw our hearts and want to sway us and, and move our affections from the eternal to the temporal. And so I'm going to continue, and the others who are up here on Sunday mornings will continue to remind us of this transference, of this change of paradigm, of this reality that is true of the Christian life known as new creation life. New creation life. Probably one of the most significant aspects of scripture that we can understand and we can seek to know truth in. New creation life. And all of it is to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? It's not so that we could have some corner on the market, but that experientially our lives are oriented in their trajectory towards the glorification of our Christ and King. Previously, before this, we studied the book of Acts. As I said in the book of Acts, if Acts was the proclamation the verbal testimony, the verbal proclamation of the gospel, that is what Matthew is to the visible witness and the visible testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew 7, we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, the last two previous sections, the one on the, the, the narrow and the wide. Last week we looked at the sheep and the wolves, and I just want to draw your attention over those last nine or so verses that Jesus 
here, we have to look obviously in the context of what has been said and what is going to be said what is going to be said. But Jesus here in the previous nine verses, it's interesting, he's working from the wide, from the broad, into the narrow. From a little bit more general to a very pointed intention. In the, in the uh, discussion of the wide and the narrow paths, Jesus is looking and comparing and contrasting those who are saved and those who are lost. And then in last week's portion of the text, looking at those who would be deceivers, the false Prophets. He's looking at the sheep and the goats, and so it's becoming slightly more personalized. And then we find ourselves today, interestingly enough, where he's actually speaking about those who are not outside of the faith, but those who believe that they are inside of the faith and are so self-deceived. And therefore, but we know is true is that they are not regenerate in this portion of the text. And so Jesus is becoming more pointed and more narrowly focused and a more personalized application with the hopes that a response to the call of the gospel would be made. Jesus is now speaking of false disciples, those who have made a verbal profession but are in fact self-deceived as to the reality and the legitimacy of their faith. What a frightening thought, isn't it? And if there's a text within Scripture, perhaps, that would cause us to take pause and examine our own hearts, it would be this one. To examine ourselves, as Paul would say, to ensure that we're in the faith. And the, I think that the, the part that can be frightening about it is that we can look at that and we can say, oh my gosh, they've done all of these things? They did this and they did this. And, and we look at that and it's kind of a, an impressive list of things that were done in the name of the Lord Jesus. But what does he say? He says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Man, that's harsh, is it not? So the difficulty with a passage such as this is the thought that there may be some who have gone their entire lives and done these seemingly amazing, mighty works in his name per this rather impressive list that Jesus states, yet the result of which is that he claims to never truly know them. But this is the point. The point is not the magnitude nor the impressive nature of their works themselves, but it's the reality of the heart in which they were being done. It's not the magnitude of the works, but it's the heart, the reality of the heart in which those works were being done. Jesus is not saying that there will be those who have been genuinely regenerated by his spirit, but yet will not be known by him. That is not what this portion of the text is saying. Rather, these are those who perhaps look the part or act the part or say the right words and have the right response, perhaps maybe raise their hand at what point in time, at one point in time, as per someone's prompting, but never truly were made alive by faith to the saving work of the Lord Jesus. A good person can do amazing and wonderful deeds, can they not? There are many good people. There's many good people that are probably better than I in some respects in terms of the actions and the works that they do. But unless you are truly regenerate, unless the Spirit of God makes you alive to Him, those works are dead works. The great things that we do are nothing more than just works themselves. And they are unable to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us, I'm sure, have had families or friends who have exemplified this at various points. We can think of people in the history of our lives that you go, man, 
I thought this was true of who they were, but like from that point on, there was no resemblance of anything of faith in their life. Could they be perhaps one of those? They've never exemplified the fruit of regeneration either, neither in their actions or their desires or their, or their words. This is why fruit is such an important thing. Fruit is so important in the matter of the life of a believer. It's how we can measure from the outside and be measured for ourselves. And this is what the point of last week's teaching was. A bad tree can only produce bad fruit, but a good tree can only produce good fruit. That's why fruit is such an important thing. However, too, for those of us today, as I was considering and reflecting, meditating upon this portion of Scripture, asking the Lord for insight into what he would have for us today. There is something for us who are regenerate, who are believers. There's a warning, there is, there is, there is a, 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 a commendation within this portion of scripture that we must take to heart and must heed today. And it's this, it's the tendency of the hearts as part of our human nature, which we still deal with, which we still are at war with, are we not? We battle human nature. If you don't battle your human nature on a daily basis, Please see me afterwards because I would love to speak to you as to how you've managed to do so. We all battle it day in and day out. And so what we have to do is realize this, that it's, it's the tendency of our hearts to slip from a life that rests in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to a life that is skewed, which happens so subtly, towards pleasing God through the things which we do. How easily we slip, what fine a line that is that we walk sometimes between the matters of the heart. Are we doing it out of just who we are because of who he is to us? Or are we somehow trying to find the pleasure of God in the things in which we do and somehow find ourselves to be pleased with ourselves as well? And unfortunately, I believe that this is the place in which the church finds herself today in many ways, filled with many individuals who have been led to believe that they are regenerate, when sadly, many are not. Many do not resemble nor reflect the fruit of a life that is regenerate. But what has led us to this place today, and this is really where I felt the Lord was stirring my heart to speak this morning What has led us to this place today of self-deception is a preaching of a false and counterfeit gospel. It's one that is pervasively taught, I believe, in many evangelical churches today, and it's the false gospel of moralism. Moralism, we spoke about this last summer when we did our series called The Plausible Arguments, and this was one of the things that we spoke of as being deceptively a doctrine that was deceptive to the church itself. Moralism, moralism is this, defined Moralism within Christendom is the belief that we can achieve righteousness by means of proper behavior. That we can achieve righteousness by means of proper behavior. The seduction of moralism is the essence of its power. We're so easily seduced into believing that we can actually gain all the approval we need by our behavior. I read a quote this week regarding this very thing from a gentleman who's uh, quite the uh, social apologetic these days. He says, one of the most insidious false gospels is a moralism that promises the favor of God and the satisfaction of God's righteousness to sinners if they only behave and commit themselves to a moral improvement. 
And was this compelling of right behavior not the very thing that Jesus dealt with with the Pharisees in the New Testament throughout his ministry? What does he say to them? You hypocrites, right? You Woe to you, brood of vipers. You are like a whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. This commending and compelling people to just outward conformity as though it in of itself is righteousness and is pleasing to God. But what Jesus says is, no, you have to find rest in the grace of God. And I'll speak more about this in a moment. But finding rest in the grace of God in the total sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ. Thereby the fruit of your righteousness are the good works in which you do. I think it's Martin Luther Luther that says we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Did I get that right? In other words, there is a result of your faith that is outward and visible and manifests itself. So it isn't one or the other. It isn't that works have no place and that it's only grace, but it's that grace leads to good works. Where the true gospel transforms sinners into sons and daughters, the false gospel of moralism only produces, listen to this, better behaving sinners. The true gospel transforms us into sons and daughters. It transforms, it, it metamorphosizes us into sons and daughters through sanctification. Moralism only polishes the outside. It puts lipstick on the pig. It requires and brings about better behavior in the sinful nature. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. This is exactly what Paul was talking about when he, when he um, rebukes the church in Galatia. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. He says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Couldn't be more clear than that. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Moralism is distorting the gospel of Christ. And then he continues and he says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have said before, excuse me, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And skip down to chapter 2, verse 16. And let's look at what he continues to say. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so he's saying that in order to receive salvation, it is not the works of the law, it's not the fulfilling of the law, because we know that the law led to the need, to the reality of the need of a Savior. But it's grace by faith of which we receive salvation. And he finishes in verse 21, and he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And then he'll finish it and he'll say in verse 
3 of chapter 3, having begun by the Spirit. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? You are, being, you are now being perfected by the flesh. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? I apologize. I wasn't reading that well. This is a message I believe that we can speak to ourselves. In so many areas, and I think that this, it warrants, as I said in the beginning, some introspection, some, some spiritual self-examination. Are there areas in our life, are there things in our life? Are we struggling over here? Let's all turn around and look at... No, I won't say I won't say their name. I won't say their name. I actually didn't hear it until everybody started going like this and looking this way at you, so you can thank everyone else. No, I've forgotten my place. And, and yeah, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to do the condensed version in 20 minutes. Um, Paul was saying in, in Ephesians 3.3... 3, Yep, I said that. Okay. Galatians 3.3, 3, thank you. So moralism itself, it aims, its aim of moralism is at the behavior in hopes of affecting the thinking. Moralism is aimed at, at one's behavior, first and foremost, primary, in hopes that it affects the thinking. Hear how that is reversed. And what is it, it would, in our own hearts and minds, what do we say to ourselves? If I can just do this, if I can do this consistently, I know that in, in this thing, whatever it is, whatever that blank spot is that you're going to fill in, it's maybe not necessarily a bad thing, but it's how we go about it, it's how we view it. Do we view it in light of truth, in light of what is true as part of the new creation, that it's the grace of God that commends and compels us into this area of our life and sustains us and helps us to stand and to continue in faith? Or do we muster up enough and we begin to walk into it in hopes that it corrects and changes our thinking? It's un, it can be really nuanced, can it not, within the areas of our life? But again, depending on that area of your life, examine your hearts and allow the Lord to speak to you today. What are those areas where you are endeavoring to find his pleasure by the things that you do, rather than what he says is true. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says that right thinking and correct understanding will lead to right actions. We've been saying this a lot lately. The way that we think, the things that we believe, affect that which we do. That's the gospel. The false gospel is usually easy to identify because it's the opposite of what the gospel is but that necessitates us knowing what the gospel actually says. So we have to be diligent to mine scripture, to meditate upon what is true, to allow the truth of scripture to change and to conform us by the power of the Holy Spirit day in and day out. For an example, think of prayer. Prayer is something that all of us endeavor to do more of. We all want to have a robust prayer life. We all know probably the benefit of prayer? What does moralistic thinking say in regards to prayer? God wants me to pray. I want to pray. I want to pray more. So I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to spend 20 minutes because 20 minutes is a little bit closer to 30 minutes. Is it happening again? 20 minutes is a little bit close, closer to 30 minutes. And in doing so, and I would say to you, go back and listen to Rick's teaching a couple weeks ago on prayer. 
in the type of prayer that we engage in? Are we asking or are we seeking? Are we seeking the things that God desires to reveal to us? And so we pray because we know that prayer is good, but it, that, it's that way that we go about doing it. It's that like, okay, I'm going to pray for 20 minutes this morning, and I'm going to pray for 20 minutes next morning. You do it three days in a row, and you're like, yeah, I've done it. God is happy with me. God's pleased with me. I've somehow you know, achieved this righteous act by just... Mm. Now, again, it's nuanced because there is something to be said where Paul talks about, I beat my body and I make it my slave. So there is something of discipline that I'm not saying is negated, but again, I'm just saying, what is the heart matter? What's propelling us and compelling us into these actions of which we take? So again, moralism is first aimed at behavior. True faith life is aimed at understanding and knowledge first. So within Christianity, truth found within the gospel is central and pivotal to the process of effecting change in our life. The truth of the gospel is essential, and it's pivotal. You want change in your life, then understand what God says about that area. Understand what the truth is about that very thing that you desire for yourself. Contemplating, meditating, reminding ourselves daily what is true, and in so doing, we find ourselves transformed in our thinking. And this is what Paul says to the Corinthians when he says, and we, as we behold, with unveiled faces, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the other. We fix our minds, we fix our hearts, we fix our gaze upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ through the revealed nature of God in Scripture. And in so doing, the Spirit of God transforms us from one degree of glory to another. And it says that, for this is the work of the Spirit, Paul says to the Corinthians. This is how we combat it in our own hearts. Whereas the flesh wants to say, I'm going to do, 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 the faith life, the true regenerate new creation life says, I'm going to understand, I'm going to seek, I want to know so that I might do. And I hope you hear this this morning. So in Matthew 7, it's easy, as I said a moment ago, to get hung up on a rather impressive list of things that are done in the name of the Lord Jesus. After all, are these not things that we would want to do ourselves? And would this not be something that only someone who's truly regenerate be able to perform? And, and I would say to this, that don't get hung up again on the actualities of what is being done, because we know that there are false spirits and there is a false gospel of which is shown in Acts, and it's shown throughout in other portions of the New Testament. And Paul would speak to the church in Thessalonica, and John, in Revelation 13, speaks of all of the false works and signs and miracles that are done by the spirit of the age and the spirit of the Antichrist. So it isn't just the works then of themselves. That's like, man, only someone who's truly regenerate would be able to cast out a demon, right? Would be able to do a mighty work. We know because the Bible teaches us and again, and this is where it requires discernment on our part, that there are false signs. There will be false miracles that would want to lead us astray towards a false gospel. Again, the point is not what they did, but the heart of what they are actually saying. Lord, and he, they say this, Lord, didn't we do? Didn't we do 
And what does he say to them? I never knew you. The warning in Matthew 7 isn't that some of us who have a genuine faith have done things in our life in the name of the Lord might somehow find ourselves sent away from him at the final judgment. The warning here is that a verbal confession of Jesus as Lord does not always indicate a heart that's truly repentant. That's the warning in Matthew 7. Notice, too, the emphasis in the statement there that I read, didn't we do? It's not that they did not know him. It's that he did not know them. It wasn't that they didn't know him. It's that the Lord did not know them. Who is it that will enter the kingdom, he says, but he, but him who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. How does one know the will of the Father unless they have first been made alive to the will of the Father through faith? Doing the will of my Father is not merely a statement of ethics, but it's a deep and intimate knowing of the being and being known by Jesus the Lord. It's not a statement of ethics, but it's knowing and being known deeply and intimately by the Lord Jesus Christ. Later in Matthew chapter 12, which we'll get to in six months or so, that was, yeah, it was a joke. You can laugh. Jesus will speak about knowing. He says, who are those that do the will of my father? And he points to his disciples and he says, it's my brother and my sisters and my mother in pointing to his disciples. And so there's a relational dynamic. There's a familial familiarity that Jesus is speaking about of those who know him of this deep and intimate knowledge. That word knowing in the Greek, too, is the root word which Paul would use in Romans 9, excuse me, in Romans 8, verse 29, to speak of the knowing which God had for us, having been predestined in Christ for salvation by grace. So it goes far beyond just an intellectual ascent of knowledge. It's the deep knowledge. It's the, it's the predetermined knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ had of those whom he has saved. For us, for believers, for children of God, this knowing is a seeking and a pursuing of the will of God. The fruit of which is a life of knowing God followed by righteous and good works. This fruit which we looked at last week is not merely outward deeds that resemble one who is of Christ, but it begins inward, it begins in our hearts which only God truly knows, but it produces good fruit because a healthy tree, as I said, produces healthy fruit. I read another quote this week. I want to share it with you today. I just thought it was helpful in kind of putting a period on this false gospel of moralism. The core of the Christian life, he says, is not me and what I do for Jesus. It is Jesus Christ and what he did for me. It's important to note that what I do for God has its place. And God speaks to this often. Yet I can never be the center of my Christian life, nor what I do for God. It is always centered on the person and work of Jesus. If what I do becomes the focus, Christianity becomes a list of rules and moral obligations instead of living a living and real relationship with the Savior. It's not deeply profound, but I thought it was really wonderfully put. 
It's very succinctly and well stated. If it becomes about what we do, then it becomes just that very thing. It's a list of moral obligations. It's a, it's a to-do list that we check off each and every day. And the intimacy of which God desires to know us and of which we genuinely desire to be known is missed in such. So how do we respond? How do we respond as Christians? What do we do? How do we guard ourselves from such a thinking and perhaps from such a living? Turn with me to 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. First John chapter 2. I want to read a handful of verses here, but just listen to this beginning in verse 15. First John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of God, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed. Listen to this. Interesting language. You have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Verse 21, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Underline that in your Bibles. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life in verse 26, and I'll finish at 29, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. There's that word again. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you. And then he says again, to end it, abide in him. The answer to the testing of the veracity of faith. The answer to the testing to see if faith is genuine. The answer to winning the war on the flesh. To refute the deceptiveness of false prophets and teachers. And the spirit of the Antichrist which is within the world. And to persevere faithfully to the end. Is to abide in the truth. The truth which was deposited in us and to us at our conversion in faith. For as he says, for if the truth abides, we in turn will abide with the Father and the Son. Interesting language too where he says, if they had continued with us, 
they would, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, he says. Very interesting as we lay that on top of Matthew 7 and endeavoring to understand what Jesus is saying. The fruit of those perseverance is a sign of those who are truly in Christ Jesus. What truth was deposited that John is speaking of in verses 27? The anointing, he says, that you receive from him abides in you. This anointing that John speaks of is regeneration. The anointing that you receive, the regeneration of your heart that you received from him, it abides in you. The truth of what God has done, the the fullness of the work of the cross of Jesus Christ, it dwells within our hearts as believers. We don't have to go looking for truth in that the Spirit of God makes it alive to us as we meditate upon, as I said earlier. The saving power, that power, that power of the cross of Christ has transformed our hearts from stone into malleable flesh, has it not? And it's a self-attesting truth within our hearts. This anointing that has given to us by regeneration is self-attesting. It speaks of itself to the truthfulness of what it is. And it dwells in us and it lives in us richly. To abide in truth is to continue in belief. To abide in truth is to continue in belief of what God has said and what God has done and to walk in it with obedience. That's what it is. This is how we combat this tendency in our hearts to want to do, do, do. We abide in what is true. The work of the cross of Jesus Christ alive within our hearts and we, we rest in that grace. That's where grace is. Grace is that which is given to us which is unmerited. Grace is that which is imparted to us by the Spirit of God for the daily life of the believer. Resting in grace is to rest from the futile efforts in the works that we would try to participate in and partake in that we might attain righteousness. Grace says, no, this is who God is. This is what God has done. Live in this space. Remind yourself of this daily. This is resting in the grace of God, the application of the gospel in our life, the totality and the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus believed upon and applied and lived out. That is grace active in our life. The cross of Christ believed upon, applied, and lived out. John will say earlier in verse 17 that whoever does the will of the Father abides forever, remains forever, continues forever, is found in him forever, is secure forever. We need to hear this forever message sometimes. God has you. He's sustaining you. He's holding you. He's keeping you. He's maintaining you. He's propelling you. Despite all of our weaknesses and despite our failures and our inability sometimes to do the things that we know he has called us to do obediently, God is keeping you. And he says in 25 that, and this is the promise that he made to us, and he says, eternal life. To this, Augustine would say, hold fast to Christ. For you he became temporal so that you might partake of eternity. New creation life is one that is called to holding fast to Christ. 
abiding richly in the depths of truth, continuing faithfully and obediently, and one day enjoying the gift of eternal life. And in so doing, we are not wavered by error. We are not misguided by false teachers and doctrines that are deceptive, nor are we led astray by the inclinations of our flesh. Abide in him. And if you abide in him, he abides in you. May God grant us the grace to live in such a way. Amen? Would you please stand with me as I pray this morning? Lord God, we begin by praising you for this reality of the abiding truth which we have in our hearts. That those of us who have been made alive to Christ have within us the Spirit of God, the self-attesting truth that speaks of what is genuine and what is true. Father, we praise you for this reality of the Christian life. Lord, we ask that you would keep us from idle works, Lord. That you would keep us from seeking your pleasure through that which we do. And Lord God, that we would be fixed upon the grace of the Lord Jesus, that we would understand the sufficiency of grace, the totality of grace, the beauty of grace, Lord God. And I pray today that if for those of us, Father, who struggle in this area, that you would show us with wisdom and gentleness, Lord God, how great your grace is for us. I ask, Father, that the Works of this body would be works that are a result of what is true of who we are. I ask for the new creation, life of Christ Jesus that is alive within us to become more and more pervasive through the things in which we do. I pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified through this community of believers. And I ask, Lord God, that you would transform us, renew our minds, renew our thinking, Lord God, that our actions might be righteous and good and God-honoring. Propel us forward today, Lord, in your grace, as a community, as families and as individuals, Lord. All glory be to Christ Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen.